Hello, my lovely people. Welcome to Staff Room Stories, where we take a peek behind the staff room door at what Australian teachers are talking about and what they ought to know. I'm your host, Emily Aslan. Join me each week, often with amazing guests, to explore the topics that are coming up in our real life staff rooms and our online teacher communities. Enjoy. Step into the staff room, my friends. This week and next week, I'm joined by the incredible Maria Delaney from the Social Change Agency. We are going to dive into the topics of toxic masculinity and respectful relationships. So please be mindful of your own mental health. Parts of these discussions could be uncomfortable for some listeners, as we mentioned various aspects of toxic and abusive relationships and the mental and emotional impacts that can arise from them. Maria is such a knowledgeable and experienced practitioner in this arena. She began teaching primary school about 40 years ago and moved into providing professional development and support for teachers and schools around how to cultivate inclusion and equity and prevent bullying and violence. She completed master's and PhD studies in leadership for social change and has worked with the Queensland Education Department in the Gender Equity Unit She's worked on the Bullying No Way project and with the national organisation called Our Watch, which aims to prevent violence against women. She has also worked with the implementation and evaluation of the Queensland School's Respectful Relationship Pilot, which informs the current guidance for our schools. Maria is currently working in university research in related areas, and she has her own consultancy called the Social Change Agency, which I will, of course, link to in the show notes for you to check out. I'm so grateful to be having this conversation, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it over on Facebook and Instagram at Staff Room Stories. So let's jump in. All right. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. So excited to have the opportunity to talk to you. And you've been so interested in all these issues for teachers and this in particular that we're going to speak about today is sort of a focus area for me. So thank you. Yeah, that's why I thought you would be the perfect person to come on and give us all a little advice. So here's the story from the staff room. I had a colleague who taught a senior fitness class and she is a young, pretty female teacher And she's in charge of a fitness class that was at least 90% male students. And it took her a little while to get them on side. And the reason for that was that she was constantly having conversations with them about the way that they treated her as a female and the way that they spoke to her, the way they spoke about other females and the way that they behaved. And this is a story that I've heard quite often and it's led to many conversations in our real life staff room and also many conversations in our online communities with other teachers about the behaviours that we see sometimes our male students exhibiting. A lot of these behaviours can be quite troubling. They can be quite misogynistic. And of course, they aren't just aimed at female teachers or female students. A lot of these behaviours are also aimed at other male students or you know, even aimed back at themselves. And a term that has come up quite regularly is toxic masculinity. So from your own work in this arena, can you explain a bit to me about what toxic masculinity is and how is it different to other forms of masculinity? Thanks, Emily. And and that's such a great summary of 
you know, what a lot of folk are experiencing in schools. And I've heard from folk working in the Queensland Teachers Union, for example, about investigation they've been doing into this kind of experience and the difficulties that schools are having in responding to that. And the notion of toxic masculinity and the, the language that we use when we're talking about masculinity or masculinities, the different kinds of masculinity, because the idea of toxic masculinity isn't the idea that masculinity in itself is toxic as a whole, or that men are toxic or bad, and um, this kind of anti-men idea that uh, people sometimes in a sensitive, reactive way often, you know, take up that idea that that's what we're saying when we say toxic masculinity, but we know not all boys or men are toxic, of course. So maybe this word, this idea of toxic masculinity is new to you or you've heard other people talk about it. You might have heard some confusion about it or even sense resentment or anger when people have talked about it. It often comes up when I do training with teachers that some men on staff are very sensitive when you're talking about masculinity or masculinities and use words like toxic. So it's not necessarily very helpful, actually. And being mindful of language, just think about what comes to your mind, perhaps reflect for a minute and what comes to your mind when you hear the term toxic masculinity or the idea of unhealthy ways of performing, being a boy or a man, what kind of behaviours, what kind of beliefs you think are demonstrated. You might think about things such as kind of the teasing and the bullying and harassment that goes on, not just towards teachers, but all other students. Might be things in relation to bodies, body shapes, sexuality, relationships, the way young people communicate online is particularly relevant. There's been a lot of attention to the, for example, non-consensual sharing of images, thinking about language, that young people use with each other, the way that that kind of puts down certain kinds of boys or men, different forms of masculinity and, and the way it um, diminishes women, like accusation that you're throwing like a girl when um, you're playing sport or boys saying don't be a pussy, sexualised statements that are offensive to female bodies and equate them with sort of weakness and the use of the term gay as a derogatory term that young men often use towards other men. It reinforces the idea that, you know, heterosexuality is the norm and has a connotation that um, it's bad to be gay and should be ashamed, that kind of things. So it's a lot to do with power and dominance and vulnerability. And it's a very complex thing too. So, you know, when we say, of course, not all boys or men have these toxic behaviours, there are many ways that power works and, and the dynamics and the intersections of race, for example, and the racism young people experience, class, poverty, indigeneity. So you know, the young men and boys most likely to be bullied would be from poor Indigenous communities, for example, or ADHD type might be more vulnerable. And particularly kids that have experienced trauma and been witness to family violence themselves, and they've grown up in that environment. So they've unconsciously absorbed all kinds of ideas about behaviour and relationships from their environment. They've been, might have been traumatised themselves. So we need to take a particularly trauma-informed approach. So it's very complex, but we do see that there's themes there. And when you reflect on behaviour and identity and ideas about what it means to be a boy and a man, that this theme throughout, no matter what, is quite prevalent. So this is where we're 
sort of working towards when we do the kind of work and respect for relationships um, education, for example, where we as a whole school community look at gender and, and all those other intersecting areas and, and talk about power dynamics and relationships and the way we think about and look at and relate to each other and, and how respectful that is. So that's kind of a very broad sweeping description, I suppose, and, and pointing towards that this is not just a classroom um, interpersonal relationship issue, but it's, you know, in communities and organisations and it's systemic and it affects boys and girls um, and everybody. So it's not about targeting particular boys or boys as a group or men as a group and saying that they're bad and toxic at all. It's about all of us developing capabilities around self-awareness and and healthy relationships and working together to be activists to create change, being mindful and being careful and compassionate along the way because it's very difficult, very personal and very emotional work. So what I'm hearing you saying is that toxic masculinity is really about like the harmful aspects of personality traits so things like dominance and misogyny but presented in a harmful way exactly it's these notions around gender and identity and ideas that males and females are different and there are different norms and stereotypes ascribed to boys and men and girls and women that are narrow and confining and in some ways unhealthy and we've just reflected on the range of those for boys and there are some for girls too so for example let's say deaths from injury are three times higher among males and females some you know about the high risk taking that comes with the idea of being a boy and it's often cultivated by our culture and popular media and action heroes and so forth uh, the kind of sports that boys are encouraged into Girls are more likely to experience anxiety disorders and eating disorders because of the way uh, the culture affects their feelings about their bodies and um, how they should be and how they should behave their bodies and how focused that is on being desirable for, for men. You know, males are more likely to experience substance abuse disorders because they're um, not encouraged to express their feelings so much. You know, there's been studies done with babies boys have been dressed in like girls and the girls have been dressed like boys and they've brought strangers in to interact with the babies and it's shown really clearly that when the assumption is the baby's a boy they're put down on the floor encouraged with more active play given less eye contact less cuddles less you know close communication whereas the girls are cuddled more they're spoken to more they're interestingly not expected to do block play and playing with cars but they're given dolls of course to play with so their play is encouraged from an early age to be more relational and interactive and caring for others and being mindful of others feelings things like that so you know this this is where this work starts from very early childhood and us being mindful of the assumptions and expectations we have you know so there's some a lot of research that demonstrates how we cultivate these different assumptions and expectations and they build into this idea of high risk taking and, and aggression and violence and dominance, you know, for boys, when you look at all the media and the popular culture, it's, it's quite clear. So we're really sort of inadvertently encouraging this sort of behaviour in our own babies. And mm. I would imagine for most people, it's quite unconscious, you know, this is the way it's always been done. Girls play with girls toys and boys play with boys toys. 
So we're sort of perpetuating that cycle from a very young age by the sounds of it. Absolutely. I mean, when you start to think, and, and it is very unconscious, and in fact, it's very confronting for a lot of people because when you invite them to start to think about that and they think, oh, well, gee, maybe my son might not have wanted to play soccer all these years. Maybe he did really want to do ballet and what have I done? Or, you know, it can be really personal and can really be confrontational. That's why it's often it is emotional work. People, you know, particularly if you invite men to reflect on their ideas of masculinity and, and their expectations in relationships and they start to think, oh, well, gee, I have haven't done much housework all these years and you know what have I demonstrated to my son about equal partnerships and things like that or I've always asked the boys in the classroom to move the heavy furniture you know what if I'd shown the girls that I expected them to be just as capable and active physically and strong and you know there's so many dimensions and teachers will say yes you know once we start talking about it, and I went out and just had that gender lens on and looked around I could see it everywhere and often they were very shocked and, and so a lot of emotional conversations in, in PD with staff where you know women will um, realize that they've been experiencing violence in different forms as well so it's so uh, you know this is a very big conversation for a whole school community that needs to be undertaken very carefully so you know as I say it's in the classroom, it's to do with how we understand gender and behaviour and reflecting on ourselves and our understanding and then translating that with compassion for ourselves and everybody in a very careful, collaborative way to, to approach it as a whole school community and not just individuals. Yeah. And I think we, we maybe need to take a quick second here to say to the people listening that this isn't meant to be any form of an attack on anybody. This is not oh. any form of blame. You know, you you being a man is not inherently wrong even you know like I feel that some of no. my own personal conversations that I've had with people around this lens can get very personal it's like they feel like you're having a personal attack on them because you're describing the way that some other men have behaved and this conversation that we're having now is definitely not meant to be viewed in that light at all Exactly, exactly. You know, none of the conversation should be about blaming or shaming. We've all been impacted by this. You know, we've all had toxic or unhealthy or unconsciously misguided, you know, behaviours in relation to expectations of ourselves and other people around different biases, gender, race, ableism. It's not about that. It's about, you know, building awareness and, and when you know better, you do better and you and move forward. So that you don't know until you know. <laughs> you don't. And and yeah, it is um uncomfortable and it can be quite painful and difficult to cope with. And you know, understanding that when you're having these conversations as a staff and community that there will be people that are very uncomfortable and that's a, a, a big issue to kind of prepare for as well you know the resistance and the discomfort and managing that's probably the foundational work that needs to be done in the community are you a learning community where staff and students feel safe to have conversations about sensitive and uncomfortable issues you know and, and building those capabilities at the outset finding where you're strong there and building on that and then building these conversations into those contexts that you already have where you're having professional deep professional conversations about important issues so yeah it's definitely not about the shaming or stereotyping or branding anybody you know we know all boys and men aren't toxic nobody is there's a lot of interacting factors but gender is certainly a 
primary one and, and that's something that we need to focus on. That's why these issues are coming up and it's something about masculinity or a kind of masculinity. And, and interestingly, the idea of performing gender, you know, we, we know that in different contexts we perform gender differently. So the boy that acts tough with his mates at school will be a, the darling on his mum's lap in the evening watching telly, yep. in my own experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so they know why they're doing it and what's appropriate where. The sort of contextualised masculinity or contextualised gender norms. Yep. That's right. So, you know, it's very complex and, and it's a huge personal development project more broadly and, and community and, and cultural change project in schools really to do this work and so it's so great and so important that you brought it up and you know, that we're starting to talk about it more and there's there is a beginning particularly for people here in Queensland and I know I've been down in Victoria working quite there quite a lot around respectful relationships education and doing a lot of this work and and I do research as well with some universities around programs for young men and talking to facilitators doing great work such interesting amazing work for example in Indigenous communities you know and incorporating spirituality and really the focus there is so much on not shaming because there's been so much shaming generational shaming in that context oh, and too. generational yeah. trauma so you know this is you know what I say about taking a healing and trauma-informed approach and those foundations of being a caring compassionate and capable community of holding that space for each other as we learn and then be able to do that the young people that we're working with you know not just jumping in with a list of oh this is what I should do tomorrow in the classroom to address toxic masculinity because it doesn't work like that. In fact, you'll probably stumble and be counterproductive because you'll get that kind of pushback. You know, you can't go in and give kids or anyone a sense that you're saying you're bad because you're boys and this yep. is, you know, it's 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 a tricky one. You, it, you do need to kind of call it out, but in a way that's calling them in. Yeah, I like that, call it out by calling them in. Yeah, and, and, and ourselves yep. to start with. So get real about yourself and do that work first. And that, as a school community, you spend a year doing that before you even start to think about what you're going to do with the kids, basically. Yeah, Apart right. from some initial strategies. Like this yep. is a long-term project and coming as a specialist in respectful relationship and the work I've done over the years with governments and schools, we know that really we should plan for a seven-year cycle. The PD, ongoing support participatory action research, finding out what's going on in the school first. No one's coming in to say, this is your problem. You find, you find out and talk about it yourselves, try different things, do some research, get some good PD, have these kinds of conversations and, and think about what you're already doing well and what else you can do and how you can inject all these new understandings into that. And it comes up in so many different areas when you look around the kind of policies you have, you know, this whole school approach. It's about the leadership model and practices. It's about the curriculum. It's about the pedagogy. It's about relating and, and communicating and including parents and carers in the wider community. There's so many different um, areas to work in because these attitudes and beliefs and behaviours permeate all of society, you know, and the school as an organisation needs to be a healthy model before it can say we're going to do a good job of helping young people be respected. Yeah, so I think what I'm hearing you saying is really that schools need to do the work on themselves first before jumping on the bandwagon of, like, you know, our government is 
said that respectful relationship education is going to be rolled out to all schools from next year. But from what I'm hearing, you're saying that's not necessarily going to be the best approach because a lot of schools might just jump on to sort of tick that box, bring in maybe an external provider to give a couple of little lessons or even one short lesson and they've ticked that box and move on. But there's not necessarily real reflective work happening. Yeah, it's it's the concern really. So the work that's going to be rolled out, particularly in Queensland, is uh, largely based on the results of a pilot project that I was involved with a few years ago where we worked with 10 schools and did a little respectful relationships research and worked with year one and two, actually. And the, the main findings were that there was at least two days a year PD and ongoing community of practice support by somebody with expertise in the area. It might be someone in a school or a critical friend from outside from the university or someone independent, but there are a lot of ways, you know, we can work out who, who the best people are to do that. And there are a lot of risks because there are a lot, a lot of people doing work with boys and on anti-bullying and different sorts of gender-related programs that are coming from positions that are actually not that effective and actually can reinforce gender stereotypes. And, and that's a whole other big conversation. But yeah, very importantly that the school understands these issues and can be critical about the kind of support that they get. And the department, yes, I think is working to provide that kind of support. We know from the experience in Victoria, where I spent a couple of years training people from DV and sexual assault and women's health and organisations that dealt with um, gendered violence issues and had a good understanding of those dynamics trained a lot of those folk to work with schools to help schools and to do the do some training with school staff and be a, give guidance from the side be a you know friend on the side to help with that and that was that's been really effective down there but it's taken a huge amount of resources you know and and this is what's required it's it's been said and it's you know the advice and the guidance has been out there for a long time and governments have said, yes, we're going to do it and we've done it and here is the curriculum. I really hope that that will happen. And uh, I guess, you know, teachers and schools need to be asking what's going to happen and what kind of PD and who's going to provide it. If anyone knows more about that, and I um, intend to, you know, get in touch with the folk from the department as well, because I've worked with the department over the years and I'm really excited to hear that things are on the move there. Such important work. The main thing, as you say, is a lot of emotion and discomfort that comes up in change work. And, and it's important, you know, don't rush off and start to research all about this. Just start by thinking and noticing and reflecting in yourself. You know, start slow, start small. This New York Times bestselling activist that I just love called Adrienne Marie Brown talks about moving at the speed of trust and uh, I think this is what we need to do as a community and in relationship with each other. I say uh, I like that little quote that's lovely. Oh she's amazing so it's called emergent strategy and it's all about what we're doing you know the conversation emerges not, not rushing just start with yourself and becoming more mindful and actually the centre of the community practice and the, the work I do in schools really centres on mindfulness and building all of that stuff. But like how it's meant to be, the proper meditation practice in Buddhist terms is for others, 
not for yourself. It is a big theme. It's a finding from my PhD thesis around the capabilities of the awesome activists in the department that I worked with from 30 years ago was about the kind of person they were, their characteristics, their capabilities, and they talked about mostly about things like love and relationships and connection and the you know that was what made their work so effective because we were doing this stuff in the gender equity unit in the education department 30 years ago and it all went away because of the politics of it and that's why yep. school teachers don't know about this stuff but everyone was hearing about it in the 90 in the late 80s and 90s you know there's been such a vacuum created in this, you know, it's very political in the department. And I think I told you, it's my thesis kind of ended up being about the collective trauma of people like me. That are, And now we're on the outer or we don't exist and they're trying to regenerate it. They might do online training and stuff, but you still need people that can come in and sit around in a group with half a dozen teachers and have a really deep leadership activist, brave conversation, you know. Yeah, it needs to be a conversation, not just a, a telling of how to stop being toxic. Exactly. I mean, the main finding of our research around facilitating these change programs is the facilitation capabilities are core. You know, the facilitators need to know their stuff. They need to be, you know, people like kind of I know I've become because I've learned that that's how you do it is, is really creating a safe space because what's most damaging and has caused most damage and actually probably the failure of the feminist movement is of this sort of bull at a gate thing you know yeah which is a shame because the cause is right <laughs> the approach is the key and people are emotional you know for right or for wrong men are going to arc up and say not all men you yep. got to be upfront about that and say resistance is the thing you're going to encounter and it's going to be in yourself and and you got to be mindful and gentle and learn how to be uncomfortable and stay in a conversation and be careful and kind in the conversation and all that stuff so anyway Tricky work yeah that sort of pedagogy is is something i'd probably talk about you know fairly early on once you know in the conversation about this work all right maria i'm just a bit mindful of the time here so we might wrap it up and we will come back next week to talk about what schools can do um, how they can approach this and try and do some of the heavy lifting, the emotional work to try and sort of break this cycle of these toxic gender norms. How does that sound? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Emily. Um, and thank you all for bearing with my monologue. I, I just get so excited talking about this because I, I just know how, how well it works when people get on board and they sort of transform themselves really and then and the you know, capacity for transforming everyone around them and, you know, get the activist in them going. It's a big project and I'm so excited to have a chance to talk about it and to be coming back <laughs> to talk about it some more. Thanks, All everyone. Right. Thank Teachers, you so much, Maria. You are awesome and, um, yeah, looking forward to talking to you again. Awesome. Thank you so much. I trust you found value in part one of this incredibly important discussion. I know for myself, I actually left that conversation reflecting on my own values and beliefs, and that in itself can be incredibly uncomfortable. So be aware of that as you're reflecting back on this episode, feeling very uncomfortable is very normal. 
because no change worth making happens in complete comfort. I hope you'll join Maria and I next week as we continue the conversation in part two. If you'd like to continue the conversation, come and join us over on Facebook in the group called The Teacher Community by Staff Room Stories. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Staff Room Stories. You can also check out the blog at www.staffroomstories.com for full podcast episode transcripts, as well as articles about a whole range of other staff room topics. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love for you to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And if you would leave me a review on whatever service you're listening through, this helps others to find us. Thank you for gifting me some time out of your day. I hope the rest of it treats you well.